The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, today our show is about genetic privacy, and we are welcoming back a guest we had on a few years ago who was a fabulous guest let me tell you about Jeremy Gruber, who is our great guest today. Jeremy Gruber is the president of the Council for Responsible Genetics. We're going to use it as CRG. And since 1983, CRG has represented the public interest and fostered public debate regarding the social, ethical, and environmental implications of the emerging technologies of genetics. CRG is the only biotech public interest organization that is explicitly dedicated to examining the best science, interpreting the results, assessing the implications, and communicating them to the general audience and facilitating meaningful, measurable change. They also testify in Congress on these issues. CRC, uh, CRG also publishes a bi-monthly magazine, GenWatch, or GeneWatch, G-E-N-E-W-A-T-C-H, that explores emerging issues in biotechnology. And Jeremy Gruber is an expert on the issues of genetic privacy and discrimination, and he's worked for over 15 years on genetic non-discrimination legislation at the state and federal levels, and he played a major role in the passage of the Federal Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which the acronym is GINA, which was the one passed by Congress in 2008, and he was involved in the California's 2011 law, the CalGENA Act, which is similar. He's going to talk about the, the similarities and differences. He's a founder and executive committee member of the Coalition for Genetic Fairness, which is a group of 500 organizations that advocate for genetic non-discrimination protections on Capitol Hill. He's a prolific writer on privacy issues, ranging from direct to consumer genetics to forensic DNA databases. And he's also cons he's often consulted by Congress to testify and federal agencies and state legislatures. And he's regularly featured in print, radio, and TV, and we're so glad to have him back. You can find out more about him and the great work that they're doing at Consul for responsiblegenetics.org. And I also want to mention he has a new book coming out, and that is, you can find it on Amazon. It's called Genetic Explanations, 
Sense and Nonsense. And so that's a, a really great book. So he is an expert. And thank you so much for joining us all the way from New York. Thanks for having me, Mari. Well, Jeremy, it's been a while since you've been on, and I know you've been so busy. Why don't you um, tell us, though, first, how is it that you really got to be such an expert and got involved in, in genetics? Well, it started actually at the very beginning of my career. My first uh, job out of law school uh, was with the American Civil Liberties Union, and uh, one of the first projects they gave me was to work on the emerging issue of genetic privacy and non-discrimination. And it was through my work with the ACLU uh, and then subsequent organizations uh, all the way through to to my uh, move to the Council for Responsible Genetics uh, that I've continued to to work on these issues and develop uh, my thoughts on them. Wow. And it was really kind of in the beginning, right? And even now it's, it's emerging well, it's still an emerging field. It's been, you know, the idea of uh, genetic uh, privacy and genetic discrimination, that, that this would be an area uh, that needed policy attention, is one that's been around since probably since the early 1990s. Um, but uh, certainly since 2000, when the Human Genome Project mapped uh, the human genome, and, and since the explosion of, of work in the biotechnology uh, industry uh, since, uh, we've really seen uh, a real push towards big data and uh, an explosion of of various uses of genetic information and opportunities for misuse of that information. So let's talk about what you mean by genetic information. Well, genetic information can involve a variety of different things. Uh, It can be information about a person's genetic tests. Uh, the genetic tests of a family member, um, but even more broadly, uh, it can be uh, genetic information can include uh, information about the occurrences of diseases or disorders uh, in a family member or so-called family history. So even if you've never had a genetic test, even if one of your family members has never had a genetic test, uh, there is plenty of genetic information to be had in your family history. Um, and that information can be used for a lot of good things, but it can also be misused by entities uh, that, uh, that want to. Right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but let's go back to exactly what the Council for Responsible Genetics does. Well, we're a nonprofit science policy organization. Uh, as you mentioned, we've been around for almost 30 years. Next year is, uh, is our 30th anniversary. And... Uh, we are. Uh, we, we look at uh, the genetic impl- implications, uh, uh, social and ethical implications of uh, of new emerging technology, and uh, try to foster debate uh, and try to uh, serve the public interest and make sure the public interest is served as these technologies develop. And and those technologies are often very difficult for the ordinary consumer to understand. So that's why it's, it's so helpful what, what you're doing. Let's talk a little bit about what is genetic discrimination? Well, genetic discrimination broadly is, uh, is the use of genetic information um, in an improper way. Um, and it uh, you know, doesn't necessarily require uh, discrimination, actually, for there to be an improper use of genetic information. We see 
misuses uh, of genetic information in a variety of contexts that implicate privacy, where there's not necessarily discrimination, but where uh, a person doesn't have control over their information. That control has been taken away from them uh, without their uh, consent. Um, but it, of course, can be used by any entity uh, that wants to use it um, for a profit-making motive, whether it be uh, a healthcare, a health insurance company, an employer, uh, or a commercial company that wants to buy or sell that information. Well, let's talk about because I know that you know intimately about what some of the problems are, but I think a lot of people aren't even aware that, for example. Let me give one example, and then you can give a lot more. Um, for insurance, if somebody has your genetic information, they can decide that, oh, because there is cancer in the family, that we're going to charge you 20 times more than somebody else. Wouldn't that be a form of genetic discrimination? Absolutely, and, and that's one of the reasons why we've started to enact uh, laws to protect against genetic discrimination. Um, but one of the primary reasons that led to those laws was that that was what was happening in this country. Health insurers were using genetic information to, uh, to deny policies, to require uh, increased rates, um, and uh, not just for individuals, but for their dependents. Um, and so uh, it was becoming a, a, a real problem in the United States, not perhaps as rampant as other forms of discrimination, but a very real problem, uh, and equally so with employers. Uh, employers were uh, acquiring and using genetic information to discriminate, um, uh, and, uh, and that's what led, of course, to, uh, to the enactment of, the, of a number of state laws, and then in 2008, the Federal Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. Yeah, and we're going to get to that in a minute, but I want to kind of help people understand because it, it is probably so far from their range of, of thinking about it. Like, what about if I want to get a mortgage and let's say that the, the lender gets this information on me, what could happen? Could I maybe not be given that mortgage if, if there is genetic and, you know, discrimination? Sure. That's an, in fact, that's a, that's a very real possibility, uh, and there are very few laws that would protect against that specific type of discrimination. Any uh, lender um, who is lending for a long period of time would be interested in knowing if you had a genetic predisposition to a condition that might limit your lifespan and limit your ability uh, to pay that mortgage in this case. Um, but let me give an example, a very specific example of genetic discrimination, perhaps, yeah. that might allow the listener to really understand how this might happen in practice. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, uh, there was an incident uh, of genetic discrimination uh, with Burlington Northern Railroad. And in the Burlington Northern Railroad case, what happened was a number of track workers had been working on the tracks uh, and using heavy machinery had developed carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, they uh, ha applied through their employer for workers' compensation uh, because they had an on-the-job disability. And as part of the normal procedure for expediting that request, uh, the uh, employer, Burlington Northern, took a number of samples of blood, uh, which is not unusual, although in this case they took uh, an unusually high number of samples of blood, which uh, raised some suspicion among the workers. And 
they made some additional inquiries, and it turned out that what Burlington Northern Railroad was doing was they were trying to test uh, the workers' blood samples to see if they might have a genetic predisposition to carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, in which case they would then uh, refuse to honor the workers' compensation request because uh, it would be labeled a pre-existing condition. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> now, the, the irony of, of that whole situation, of course, is that the science was bad. There, there is no genetic predisposition to carpal tunnel syndrome, or at least there isn't uh, an individual gene that's been identified uh, to be linked to carpal tunnel syndrome. So the science was bad, uh, and the discrimination was clear. Um, and they, uh, they did end up settling with the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on behalf uh, of the workers. Um, but uh, that's, all, that, that's, of course, one of the, the, the big issues with genetic discrimination. When you have entities that are non-science-based entities, they don't really understand the science. Not only are they, uh, have, do they have opportunities to discriminate and misuse genetic information, but sometimes they do so based upon false understandings of the science itself. Exactly. And if you think about all of the advantages that we might have um, as just people who are, you know, we go to school, we get law degrees, we get accounting degrees, whatever it is. And then if somehow that, that, you know, we build up this reputation and then if something in our blood shows up some kind of genetic defect, just imagine how that could be used by so many, by credit card companies, by you know, by banks that think that you're not going to be able to pay back a, a student loan. I mean, it could be anything, right, if we don't well, take absolutely. care of it. Absolutely. And, and, you know, unlike almost any other form of discrimination, uh, genetic discrimination implicates all of us. Uh, we're all at risk for genetic discrimination. We're all at risk for the misuse of our genetic information. We all have anomalies in our genome uh, that can be leaked to uh, particular health outcomes. Um, and those could be misused um, in, in a number of cases. Uh, and, uh, and while we've begun to enact laws to protect against that, we have no comprehensive genetic privacy law in this country, and there are plenty of opportunities that continue to exist for this information to be misused. Yeah, so, so we've got discrimination, and then we've got privacy issues, and we were talking about privacy a few minutes ago, and you were saying about the ability to control where this information is collected, how it's collected, where it's used, how it's shared. So let's talk about a little bit about the genetic privacy issue and what are what are the concerns that you have specifically um, about privacy? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there is a, a big push among uh, genetics research today for the accumulation of more and more data. Uh, there's a very strong belief that more data will lead to more discoveries. Uh, and uh, that may be so in some cases, uh, but the result is that researchers, research institutions, healthcare organizations, and others are busily creating vast repositories of tissue samples and other health information about perhaps hundreds of thousands or even millions of people um, and, uh, and plenty of commercial uh, companies are doing so as well. Uh, and uh, the privacy uh, policies of some of these are limited. The consent procedures are limited. And uh, I, would I would venture to guess that most people uh, who divulge their genetic information in a variety of contexts are unlikely to know 
the full extent to how that information might be used. So if my blood is collected for a, a particular purpose, let's say I'm, I'm going to go give blood, and they test your blood to make sure that you don't have HIV or something, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it is, are there laws that, that protect that, that they can't use it for anything else except to, to see whether I can give blood for, to the Red Cross? Sometimes that can end up uh, in a biobank. Uh, certainly, if you go to the hospital for a type of procedure, your sample could end up in a biobank. And those biobanks uh, have do have privacy policies, but uh, but there are mistakes, of course, all the time. Uh, and there are there is data loss, as there is data loss with any other form of uh, institution. Uh, but uh, oftentimes, um, those samples, uh, if they are uh, quote-unquote, anonymized, are allowed to be used for just about any purpose. Uh, unfortunately, the anonymization processes that we have are, are uh, limited at best, and the more and more research that we're finding out about uh, anonymization is uh, how limited it actually can be, that information can be re-identified, uh, and that genetic information in particular, which is a highly robust form of information, uh, can be re-identified um, and and that's happened. Yeah, yeah. So is it only commercial entities that we should be worried about? Tell us about that. No, I mean, certainly commercial entities are, are, are a worry. There are uh, companies um, that are selling uh, genetic tests directly to the public called direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies. Um, and these companies... Um, sell a service, and you send them your your DNA sample, and they uh, they sequence it and send back uh, a, a whole host of information uh, about it. Um, but their privacy policies change regularly, uh, and most of these companies, in fact, all of these companies, really uh, have yet to show a profit. And the the way they are more and more turning towards uh, uh, the idea of making a profit is by uh, using that information for research purposes, for other types of purposes, and the consent procedures are often very limited, um, and people really don't know oftentimes how often their information might be shared. Um, but it's certainly not limited to commercial entities, um, uh, and it, lots of public institutions. Uh, Kaiser Permanente has one of the largest biobanks in the country. Mm. Uh, uh, so plenty of healthcare organizations, researchers, uh, and others uh, are acquiring and using genetic information. As I said, a lot of them are for very noble purposes for trying to uncover uh, uh, the, the you know what le- might lead to a particular disease or condition. But uh, but the privacy policies are varied; they're limited, and oftentimes they're incomplete. You know, I had read an article about a woman who prophylactically had a double mastectomy because of um, the genetics that that she had. Obviously, she knew that her mother had had cancer and her grandmother and her aunt. So, I mean, she didn't need the genetic engineering. But although I did read that she did get a genetic test and then prophylactically uh, had a double mastectomy. Um, What do you think about that? Well, I, I think that that sometimes people can can make um, decisions based upon genetic information that are bad decisions. Um, that people have a very limited, and this is one of the 
the problems that we have as an organization, uh, and I think that we have as a country in terms of our biotechnology uh, policies, is that uh, the understanding of genomics by the American public is rather limited. Right. Most American adults uh, came of age before genetics was even taught at the high school level, uh, and even those young adults uh, today who uh, who were taught uh, genetics uh, in high school uh, learned some very basic principles of Mendelian inheritance, eye color, things of, of that nature, that did not give them a very appropriate understanding of just how complex uh, uh, genetics is and, uh, and, and the idea of inheritance. And, uh, and as a result, I think people have a, a, a lot of misinformation uh, about genetics. And, and a lot of that is, is promoted by the media. You, you can't pick up a newspaper without hearing about some new genetic discovery and some direct link between a particularly a particular identified uh, gene and, and, a, and some sort of a, a link to a particular condition. But oftentimes those are very tenuous, uh, and, uh, and genetics is far more complex than some single gene association. Uh, know, but, and, we, we, yeah. but, but most people just don't, really don't understand that. Yeah, and you know what scares me is it's like the brave new world. Are they going to take our genetics and decide, you know, who who should be thrown away? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or who should be eradicated and who shouldn't be eradicated? Kind of like the Nazis uh, to decide whether your genetics are good enough for you to be able to reproduce or not. I mean, this is, a, you know, kind of science fiction, but it sure could happen. That's Well, certainly one of the biggest emerging areas um, of concern for genetic privacy actually has been uh, in reproductive genetics. Um, there, uh, every, uh, most people probably don't even realize this, but every child that's been born in the United States, or just about every child that's been born in the United States over the last oh, almost 30 years now, um, has a blood sample taken yeah. uh, at birth, and uh, that sample is screened for a number of uh, inherited conditions. Um, and that's a very good thing. We can, you know, hopefully treat, uh, you know, very quickly any any particular condition that might be discovered. But those samples are kept in state state uh, public health department repositories, and those state public health repositories have very poor privacy protections. Um, we've actually uh, did a report on newborn screening uh, last year and interviewed a number of them, and, and they have very antiquated privacy protections. They, they keep a lot of information still on index cards. Um, they, the, there's no password protection on their computers. Uh, it's, it's a very antiquated system of, of protecting genetic uh, information. Now, are those anonymized not or not? I'm sorry? Are those anonymized, or are they still, like, when, you have, when your baby is tested... And they let no, you those know are not anonymized. Right. Those samples that are in uh, state public health databases are not anonymized. Now, if they there may they if they are shared with uh, researchers, which in many cases they can be, um, they're supposed to be anonymized. Um, but uh, there there have been cases where that that hasn't happened. There was uh, a case in Texas, for example, uh, where. Uh, their blood, their uh, newborn blood spots had to be destroyed. Uh, they had uh, the state Department of Public Health in Texas had shared samples um, with uh, with a military lab in Texas that was doing 
some research um, without the consent of any of the parents of the newborns who had donated those samples for, to be screened. Mm. Um, so these cases do happen. Um, and it's not certainly not limited to, to, to newborn blood spot uh, samples. Um, we have uh, a lot of new technologies that are now coming to the fore uh, to test for genetic abnormal- abnormalities in utero. Um, and uh, some of them are, are, are not invasive at all. And, uh, and they may become more and more common, and there, and there will likely be more and more genetic information of, uh, of, of newborns or of, of, uh, of fetuses before they become born that, that can become available. Wow. What tips do you have for us to protect our genetic privacy? Well, I think you have to be absolutely clear when you are giving your genetic information to ask a lot of questions, um, to read the privacy policies uh, of whatever institution is taking your genetic information, to read the consent uh, to any consent uh, practices that they may have and require you to sign. Uh, very clearly. Um, but in the end, in many cases, you have to uh, make a judgment call to determine whether what you're giving your genetic information for, if you feel that it is, if, if that outweighs, um, you know, your concerns, then, then you should probably do it. Uh, you know, there is a lot of good to be done from genetic research and the uses of genetic information in medicine, but you have to be aware that the laws are still limited. Um, they're better than they were several years ago, but they're still limited. Yeah, we, we have about two minutes left, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about what are some of the, the safeguards and the laws that you've helped to pass, our, our federal law and especially our California law. What are some of the safeguards that are included? Well, we have a federal genetic information on discrimination act that prevents health insurers and employers from acquiring and using genetic information. Um, but outside of health insurers and employers, uh, we still don't have a lot of protections in this country. Uh, California just passed last year the CalGENA law. Uh, that expanded upon the federal law to include areas like life insurance, long-term care and disability insurance, mortgages, and a whole host of other areas where genetic information and misuse, uh, uh, misuse of that information might occur. Um, but most states don't have those types of laws. Most states are... Uh, at best, follow the federal law, which is limited to, as I said, health insurance and employment. So there's still many, many areas where the potential for uh, privacy uh, uh, and uh, and discrimination is implicated. Um, and 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 we're we've been mostly talking about the health context, but of course, uh, DNA is being collected all the time by law enforcement uh, for for purposes of identifying individuals and and uh, uh, states and the federal government have huge databases for those purposes as well. Now, are those shared with uh, commercial entities, or right now they're just shared with other law enforcement and other governmental agencies like Homeland Security, et cetera? Right now they're, they're, they're shared only among uh, federal agencies or states but uh, for law enforcement purposes. Um, but more and more information uh, is being collected in those databases from people who are innocent or at least who have not been convicted of crimes. Now 23 states collect DNA upon arrest before yes. people are even convicted of a crime. That's crazy uh, to me. And but... they're engaging in policies from, uh, of, of collecting DNA from people who are demonstrably innocent for purposes of trying to prove uh, 
the guilt of other parties. Familial members, there's a use of what we call familial searching for that purposes. Um, and uh, uh, there is uh, there have been practices, for example, where police have stopped people for uh, for a particular crime and offered to uh, to let them go upon uh, giving a DNA sample, which then goes into the database. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been what we call DNA dragnets, where people are rounded up in a particular neighborhood where a crime has occurred and they have DNA evidence, but they don't know who who gave the sample and they try to see if they can find a match in that in that way. So there's a, a whole host of ways where privacy and human rights are implicated by police practices. It's not merely limited to those people who've really actually committed the crimes. Right. Well, we are out of time, Jeremy. You are just a wealth of wonderful information, and this is something that we're going to definitely have to have you back again. So thank you so much for joining us. And just I'm going to just give your website, www.consulforresponsiblegenetics.com. And keep up your great work, and uh, see you soon. Thanks, Mari. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy and write us an email about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.